We've been uh, teaching on the subject of righteousness for the last few weeks, and we want to continue to go a little bit further down that line. So we want to start in Romans chapter 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5. Paul introduces by the Holy Ghost, by the instruction and direction of the Holy Ghost, Paul introduces God's two-man uh, well, I started to use the word theory, but it's not, it's not, uh, uh, that wouldn't be an appropriate word to use. Let me say it this way. The Holy Ghost informs us that all of mankind hangs on the actions of two men. First, Adam in the Garden of Eden. And second, Jesus when he came to the earth. Romans 5.17, it says, For if, literally since, this is the way it worked, if by one man's offense, he's talking about Adam, if one man's offense... By one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. God's two-man revelation to us is simply this. We know in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, when God made Adam and Eve, he gave them authority and dominion over everything that he'd made here on the earth. He gave them one commandment. There was one thing that they could not do. And that was eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, we see from what Paul tells us here, he confirms what we already know. And that is the death he was talking about wasn't a physical death. Adam and Eve didn't die physically the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree, forbidden tree. They died spiritually. And that's what this death that Romans 5.17 is talking about that began to reign over mankind. Mankind fell into spiritual death. Spiritual death just means separation from God, estrangement from God. It doesn't mean a cessation of existence. They didn't cease to exist, but they existed in a different form and a different manner than they had before. The light of God's word, the light of life that was in them went out. And they became estranged or separated from God. Now, the fact that the Bible tells us and uses the comparison between Adam and and Jesus, I think is very significant, something that doesn't seem to be uh, either understood or focused on to any degree among the modern-day church. But when Adam was in the Garden of Eden before he fell, he was alive by the, the Spirit of God that was within him. The Bible tells us about how that God fashioned Adam's body with his hands and then breathed in him and breathed the breath of life into him and he became a living soul. King James says he became a living soul. The source of Adam's life was the spirit of God. Before God breathed in him, he looked like a man. He had the body and the appearance of a man, but there was no source of life. God made Adam's source of life his own spirit. When he breathed into him, he took a part of himself and placed it in mankind. Now, we know in Genesis 1.26, the reason that God put man here in the first place. Genesis 1.26 says, God said, let us make man in our own image and in our own likeness and let them have dominion over the earth, over all the work of our hands. Man was created for one purpose, not because God was lonely. God can't get lonely. He's God. God certainly wanted a man to fellowship with. But it wasn't even for fellowship that God created him. He created him for the purpose of having dominion. So realize what this means. This means 
that the only thing that God created, the only one of God's creation that had any part of himself was man. And that deposit, that breath of life that was the source of Adam's being, the source of his life, was his basis or foundation or right to exercise dominion on the earth. Now, when man fell, everything changed. I used to think, and I used to preach this way. Matter of fact, pretty much everybody that I know preaches it this way. But it became a common phrase or a commonly understood idea that man lost his dominion and authority when he fell. But now think about what that would mean. That would mean the trickery of the devil, the deceit of the devil that caused Adam to disobey is great enough. The power that the devil exercised is great enough to change God's whole plan. Does anybody really believe that? I don't. I don't believe God's plan could be changed. Well, if it couldn't be changed, then that means man never lost his authority. He just lost his connection with God in the exercise of his authority. Now, some people will say, yeah, but the Bible tells us that Satan is the God of this world. Well, the word that's used for world there does not mean planet, does not mean the earth. It doesn't even mean the the world system that's in operation here on the earth. It means time. So when the Bible says Satan is the God of this world, it means he's the God that's ruling over this time. But how does the devil accomplish his work? He He doesn't just decide the world is the way that it is. Satan accomplishes his work through the influence by deceit over men and women that have authority here on the earth. That's the only way he has to operate is through his deceit, through his trickery. The Bible says that we're not ignorant of his devices. That means we're not ignorant of the way that he works. He works through deceit. Sleight of hand, trickery. And he only has the opportunity to exercise dominion on the earth through the the free will and choice of men under his influence. I think we've given the devil way too much credit for things here on the earth. Man is the one that was given dominion. Satan can't change that. He hasn't been able to and he won't be able to. So when Adam was exercising dominion over the earth, it doesn't, the Bible really doesn't tell us how or specifically in what way he was exercising that dominion. But since his source of life was God, and the Bible tells us a lot in the first chapters of Genesis about how God created the earth through words. He spoke life into existence. He spoke light into darkness. He spoke so that the dry land would appear and the animals would be created and so forth. The Bible tells us over and over again that God spoke and it became just like he said. Well, there's only one reason that I can think of that would that the Bible would give us such detail about that. And that is man was created in the likeness in the image of God. So the same way that God worked in creation must be the way that man was to operate in his authority and dominion here on the earth through words. We know that's certainly the way that Jesus operated. And he told his disciples how it worked. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. 
Furthermore, when we look at the examples in the Old Testament, over and over again, God said to Israel, Behold, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. Another place in uh, Numbers chapter 14, when Israel was disobeying God about going into the promised land, God said that the eternal law, the oracle of God, the unchanging never uh, ever to be principle is simply this. I will deal with them according to the words that they have spoken in my ears. Now, if the devil's in control, why are your words important? If the devil's in control, how could you choose life over death? Apparently, man never lost his position of authority. He never lost his dominion. He just lost control of the tongue that was once hooked up, originally hooked up with God in the exercise and the use of that dominion. But the Bible tells us that this is the reason Jesus came. And when he came, he changed everything. Let me read verse 17 again. It says, for since by one man's offense, Adam's, death reigned by one. Spiritual death reigned and ruled and reigned over the earth. Much more. Everybody say much more. Now, how absolute was spiritual death reigning on the earth? Did anybody avoid the spiritual death that was here and came into being because of Adam's sin? Now, the Bible tells us that there comes a point in every person's life where they know the difference of right and wrong, between right and wrong. And when they choose wrong, and everybody has, then spiritual death begins to rule and reign over them. So we can say that death reigned over mankind absolutely, without exception. There was nobody that could exert or show any force of righteousness on their own for any period of time to avoid that spiritual death. But in making the comparison, Paul uses a word or a phrase that he used several times in in different applications. But when he uses this phrase much more, if you look that up in the Greek, you'll find out that it literally means so far beyond that it shouldn't be compared. Well, we have to have something to compare it to, to understand So Paul, by the Holy Ghost, the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, rightly in my thinking, uses a comparison that we can relate to. For since by one man's offense, death reigned by one. It reigned absolutely. It reigned over every person without exception. It reigned absolutely here on the earth. Much more, so far beyond that you shouldn't even use it as a comparison. They which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. Now, consider this. Isn't it interesting that Paul, in writing about righteousness, writing about the gift of eternal life that's available to us through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus, when he talks about that righteousness, he doesn't just talk about some standing with God that's been recovered. He talks about a place A new creation place with God. A new species of being for the purpose of exerting dominion here in the earth like God originally planned. 
See, folks, if God made man to have dominion, that was his original plan, and God never changes, so that's his present-day plan. And Jesus becomes the example for us on how to exercise dominion. And what did Jesus say? Well, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He's one of the the, uh, religious leaders. And he says to Jesus, Master, we know that no one can do these things other than God being with him. All these miracles, all these healings, all the things that we've witnessed. God has to be with you. And Jesus begins talking about being born again. He said, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he can't be saved. You must be born again. Well, there's that gift of righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, the reason that God is with me is because I'm righteous here on the earth. And that righteousness belongs to anybody and everybody now that he's been raised from the dead and paid the price for it. Now, there's a difference between Adam's righteousness and Jesus' righteousness. Or the righteousness that Jesus purchased for the church. Adam's righteousness was because he was created originally in the Garden of Eden. In the manner that he was. In the likeness and the image of God. An exact copy and duplicate of God himself. But Adam's righteousness was something that was within his own power and his own control. And it was enforced. It existed and it was enforced. Continued. Based on his right action. But that's not the righteousness that we have. We've got a righteousness that was bought and paid for. We've got a righteousness that was purchased. By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of God himself. Therefore it's no longer dependent on our actions. It's an eternal righteousness. It's not subject to your mistake or my mistake. It's not a righteousness that we lose through the deceit of the devil. It's a righteousness that is once and for all, eternal in the heavens. Now, what is the purpose for us being restored in righteousness or by the gift of righteousness unto our heavenly father? Well, Paul, by the Holy Ghost, said it was so that we could reign in life. How many of you want your kids to succeed? How many of you are willing to do whatever is necessary for your kids to succeed? I wonder if God's that good. I wonder if God wants that for his kids. I don't know about you. I expect you're the same way as I am in this. And that is I'll do anything and everything in my power to see that my kids succeed. And if there's an enemy that comes against my kids, whether they know it or not, they've got two enemies. Because I'm in there with my kids. I wonder if God's that good. See, I just consider that good parenting. One of the quickest ways to get on my bad side is to come against my kids. I wonder if God's that good. I'll give my kids every advantage possible so that they can succeed. I'll do whatever is necessary so that if nobody else can succeed, my kids will. I wonder if God's that good. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life, this life, here on the earth, 
by one Jesus Christ. Now turn with me over to James chapter 3. These are scriptures that I used to have a hard time with because I hadn't done the, I hadn't come to the realization of some of the things that I just shared with you about man's authority. I was thinking that man lost his authority at the time that these scriptures were a problem for me. I was thinking that man had lost his authority through the fall. And so James chapter 3, when he starts and he says, in verse 1, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. A lot of people want to be teachers of other people, but they don't want the consequences of it. See, James is saying by the Holy Ghost, if you're going to take upon yourself to teach somebody, you've got to take on yourself the responsibility of what that teaching results in. I never have understood people want to be in a place where they could tell other people what to do. I don't want to tell other people what to do. I don't want to be responsible for you messing up. If you want to set up a counseling appointment to find out what you ought to do, let me just save you the trouble. (laughs) You're going to have to pray and find out from God, which is the way it was supposed to be anyway. So he says, be not many masters, knowing that we receive the greater condemnation for in many things we offend all. Now, the word offend means stumble. For in many things we offend or stumble or slip up, make mistakes. If any man offend or stumble not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, please realize what this is saying, folks. This is saying if you learn to control your tongue, you can control anything and everything about your life. Notice the importance of the tongue, the importance of the words you speak. Now put together this with what we just read over in Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. How is he going to reign in life? Well, if he's going to do it without stumbling and falling, he's going to have to do it through the words of his mouth. According to James chapter 3 and verse 2. If you don't master your tongue, you'll never master any other aspect of your body. But if you learn to master your tongue, you can master addictions, sin, difficulty, tragedy, trouble of every kind. If you can master your tongue, control your tongue, use your tongue rightly, you can defeat anything and everything else about you that's in your life. Are you out there? Do you see that? Then James goes on to tell us why that's so important. Verse 3, he said, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Well, even the smallest horse is stronger than a man. But you can control them by applying pressure to their tongues. That's what a bit does. It applies pressure to the horse's tongue. Pressure exerted in the right way on your tongue will lead to the control of your body. Do you see that? Verse 4, behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. He's talking about the rudder. 
No matter how big a ship is, it's got a rudder, and the, ru- the size of that rudder is extremely small in comparison to the rest of the size of the ship. Yet you can control it through one small member or piece of the construction of the ship. He said that's what the tongue's like too. A lot of people overlook the importance of controlling your tongue. But he says it's the source or the means or the way to control your whole body. Verse 5. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. In other words, he's saying no matter how big a fire is, it starts with one spark. Your tongue is the spark for the fires that can be lit and set in your own life. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and is set on fire, the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. Now let me point something out to you folks. That's not the way the tongue was made. It's not the way it was in the Garden of Eden. It's not the way it was with Adam before he fell. So what James is talking about is he's talking about the unrenewed tongue. He's talking about the tongue of the world or the tongue of the the Christian who hasn't renewed his mind to the word. In other words, he's saying, he's showing us that man lost control of his tongue in the Garden of Eden. He lost control of his tongue. Where his tongue was that which was set on fire of heaven for the purpose of exercising dominion and authority in the Garden of Eden. When Adam died spiritually. Now the source. Of the action. And the influence of the tongue. Is from hell not heaven. When Jesus came to the earth. Sacrificed himself for us. Shed his precious blood. And was raised from the dead so that we could be born again. So that we could be new creatures in Christ Jesus. God gave man back the control of his tongue. Now, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if it just happened overnight as soon as you got born again? We know it doesn't work like that. But through the word of God and the renewing of your mind to the word of God, you can regain control of your tongue. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden before the fall, everything Adam said was was sourced and originated in connection with the life of God that that was his. The spirit of God that had been breathed into him. The source of everything that Adam said before the fall. Everything he did came from the life of God that was within him. The spirit of God that was in him. I doubt very seriously if Adam walked through the Garden of Eden looking around saying, oh God, I don't deserve this. Because Adam's experience was he's looking at all the animals. God brought all the animals to Adam to name them. And after seeing everything that lived on the earth, naming all the bugs and the critters and everything else that was out there, he looked around and he said, no wonder I'm in charge. I've got the spirit of God in me and nothing else that God created does. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, 
Among other things, it says Jesus did not think it robbery or inappropriate or improper to be equal with God. In other words, Jesus understood that he was made in the image and the likeness of God. Do we understand that? I don't think we understand what it means. We may hear and accept the words. But I don't think we understand what it means. Let's keep reading. James is not finished talking about the tongue. Verse 7, he says, For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made out of the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same time sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt, water, and fresh. Now he's clearly talking about the situation that exists at the present time. And the whole point that he's making this, in this, passage of scripture is the importance of the control of the tongue how are we supposed to gain control of our tongue by the life of god in us the bible says over and over again both old testament new new testament old testament prophecies new testament fulfilled it said the just shall live by faith the just shall live by faith jesus said it this way when he was tempted of the devil In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus is saying, Jesus, who had control of his tongue in every respect, which was the reason that he was able to exercise the authority and the dominion in his life that he did, he said, the source of your tongue, the source of your words, must be the word of God. It must be the word of God. Now we know that every problem that we encounter in life has something to do with the work of the tongue. When the devil attacks us and you don't have to be in the wrong to be attacked, I don't mean that. But every time we are attacked, the results that we get are a result of the words that we speak about our circumstances. Because it's an unchanging law revealed in Numbers chapter 14. That God will do unto us according as we have spoken in his ears. So your words control everything regarding the outcome of your life circumstances and situations. Everything. But Jesus is saying, and the Holy Ghost told us in the writings of Paul as well, that we regain control of our tongue through the word of God. Jesus said in John six sixty three, he said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Hebrews four twelve says the word of God is full of life and power and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing asunder between soul and spirit, the natural realm and the physical realm. Well, the natural realm, which is the physical realm and the spirit realm, can only be divided by the word of God. Now, just knowing this, just seeing this much of the truth, 
Is there anything more important than that we should be focused on than the words that we speak? It's the means to control your whole body. It's the means of exercising dominion and authority on the earth to take advantage of and to receive everything Jesus purchased for us through his precious blood. So is there anything more important than the use of our tongue, the words that we speak? I don't see how there could be. It's the source of everything. Look with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. This word saints is the Hebrew word for holy. Now, we don't usually use the word holy very much unless we're talking about God. But the Bible says that by the blood of Jesus, by the redemptive work of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, being made righteous by his blood makes you holy. It's interesting that the Bible never says that we can please God in any way other than faith. Hebrews 11.6 said, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, we know what faith is. Faith is defined by Jesus as believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. And the Bible says that that's the only way that you can please God. Now, it commands us to walk in love. But it doesn't, there's never a place, you can't find a scripture which says, apart from walking in love, you can't please God. It just doesn't say it. No, the just, those who have been made righteous, shall live by faith, shall live by the word of God. But I want you to see again, notice again, Paul is writing to the saints, or those who have been made holy. He's he's writing to people that have been born again. Now, this word means holy. It means sacred, pure, morally blameless, and consecrated to God. Now, those are things that most of us have the idea that after we mature in God and do enough good stuff, then maybe we'll attain that. Probably not, but at least we can try. But the Bible says that you're already there. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. We've already been born again. By faith in the Lord Jesus. We've already been made new creatures. A new species of being by the blood of Jesus. And so every time the Holy Ghost refers to us. Every time the Spirit of God impresses upon one of the writers. Peter, John, uh, Paul, whoever. Anytime the Holy Ghost is inspiring a writer. He refers to the church as the holy ones. Now, what did you do to get there? Accepted Jesus. What do you do to stay there? Stay in Jesus. Yeah, but what if you trip and fall? What if you stumble? Does that remove your holiness? No. But what if you do something really bad? What if you commit sexual sin? What about then? 
Well, from the example that we have of the heroes of faith, a lot of those guys made, committed sexual sins too, and they didn't lose their place in righteousness, and they didn't lose a place in the righteousness that was just counted to them, much less for us that it's already been obtained. But what if you tell a lie? Now, folks, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying go commit sexual sin. It's okay. I'm not saying go lie. It's okay. Paul wrote to the church later in this uh, book of Ephesians. He said, let those that are lying stop lying. Let those that are stealing stop stealing. But those that are lying and stealing and committing other sins are still included in part of this group that he calls holy. We don't stop being saints. We don't stop being holy because we sin in the flesh. That's hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? Because we're all performance oriented. We're all accustomed in some level to the idea that you get what you deserve. And the devil will hammer down on you about how you don't deserve Jesus. How you don't deserve right standing with God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints, the holy ones which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath, everybody say hath, that means past tense, it's already done, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us. He picked you. You didn't find him. He picked you. And here's a little secret. He knew who you were before he picked you. All the things that the devil wants to try to beat you over the head with. Wrongdoings and mistakes and failures and things like that. God already knew about that before he ever picked you. You don't have to come sneaking in the back door of heaven saying, oh, Father, I'm so unworthy. I can imagine the conversation going like this. God responds and says, why do you think you're unworthy? Oh, because of the terrible things that I did. And he laughs and he says, oh, yeah, I saw you do that before I ever picked you. So, God, you mean you're not surprised that we messed up? And he responds, are you kidding According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That's how long ago he knew that you would mess up. Before the world was founded. Before the world was created. That we should be holy. Here's the same word as saints. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us. That just means foreordained. Doesn't mean God made it happen. It meant God saw it as a part of his plan. Made it a part of his plan before you ever came on the scene. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, he picked you because he wanted to. You didn't have to try to talk him into saving you. Or filling you with the Holy Ghost. And you don't have to try to talk him into blessing you with healing or prosperity. Or any of the other things that Jesus purchased. He did it before you ever knew about it. He did it before you were ever born. He did it because he wanted to. 
You may not realize this, but you are the apple of his eye. You are the child, the son or the daughter. That he will do anything to see that you have every advantage in life. He's already blessed you with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. How do we turn those spiritual blessings into earthly blessings? Faith. Which is the only thing that pleases God. So if we put that together, we can say that God has already given you every advantage necessary and possible. Every advantage imaginable. And if you really want to please God, you'll believe that what he said is true and take hold of it. Yeah, but what if we sin and stumble along the way? Just get up and keep going. He knew that was going to happen. Yeah, but shouldn't we repent? Sure, that takes a couple of seconds. If you imagine it as a race in an outdoor track meet type thing, most of the church world lives by running the race until they trip and fall. And then instead of getting up and finishing the race, they sit there for a while and moan and groan for a couple of days until their feelings get better about it. And then start running again. Wouldn't that be silly? Nobody's going to put down a runner for tripping. But there's no reason to quit the race. Are you out there? According as he has chosen us. In him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. That was God's original plan for you to be holy. That's why he made Adam holy. That's why he caused Jesus to pay for the precious, through his precious blood, for the plan of redemption that recreates you as holy. That you might be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now, Jesus is the beloved. He has made us accepted in the beloved. Folks, there's two kinds of people. There's those that are accepted in Jesus and those who are lost or unsaved. You can't be partially accepted any more than you can be a little bit unsaved. You're either in Christ or you're not. If you're in Christ, the Bible says specifically that you've been accepted. That means God's okay with you just like you are. He might not want you to stay just like you are. But he's provided the word for us to live by so we can change. Change for the good. But there's only two kinds of people. Those who are accepted in Jesus. Those who have been born again, in other words. And those who have not. The lost, the unsaved. To whom the gift of righteousness is available. But they haven't yet, at least, taken advantage of it. Now, if you're accepted in Christ Jesus, where is there room for condemnation because of our own actions? See, the devil wants to tell you that you messed up. And because you messed up, you're not on the end with God anymore. You may be well enough informed to know that you can't lose your salvation over it. But God wants you to go sit in the corner for a few days until you 
decide to do better. It's not the way it works. You're either accepted or you're not. You're either saved and accepted or you're unsaved and on the outside of God's family. Those are the only two possibilities. There's nothing you can do. There's no work you can perform. There's no amount of time you can pray every day or amount of the word time that you spend in the word every day that makes you accepted. God accepted you before you ever found out anything about it. Now, praying every day is a good thing. Reading and studying the word as much as you can is a good thing. I'm not saying those are not good things, but those are not the things that please and bless God. Now, they can result in things that please God. We can find the truth of the word so that we can operate in it according to our faith. And that pleases God. God is pleased when you accept his word to be true in your life and live by it. But it's faith and only faith that pleases God. And faith is so far removed from works. Things that we can or cannot do. Should or should not do. Will do or won't do. As the heaven is higher above the earth. Now the Bible talks about this righteousness. The intent. God's intent. That this righteousness should bring us to the place. We should have such an understanding of righteousness. And the new creation that we've been made unto. So that we come boldly before his throne. There is no back door to heaven that you can sneak in. And the Bible is very clear, crystal clear, that it's our nature of being born again, the righteousness of, uh, that God, that is of God, that we've been made unto, that enables us to stand before the throne of God without any sense of guilt or blame or condemnation or any such thing. The Bible goes so far as to say that we have the same right to stand before the throne of God as Jesus has to sit by it. Because we've been made accepted in the beloved. Turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1. Let me show you something else along this line. I'm not sure where I want to start in this. I like the whole chapter, but I don't want to read the whole chapter. Uh, Start in verse 9. Going to have to go with most of the chapter. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Now, stop right there. A lot of times we'll read this phrase, walk worthy of the Lord, and clearly he's talking about behavior. Clearly he's talking about lifestyle. He's talking about making choices according to God's will, his plan, and his purpose. But notice this is walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. What's the only thing that the Bible says pleases God? Faith. So the walking worthy that he's talking about has got to be walking according to faith. The just shall live by faith. 
Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when he's talking about walking worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, he has to be talking about what the Bible says in other places about the just living by faith. So let's insert that. See if it changes it any for us or helps us understand. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might walk by faith, which pleases God. Now, how many of you are walking by faith? It's a real question. How many of you are walking by faith? Let's ask it this way. To the extent that you know, how many of you are not? You're not going to raise your hand on anything, are you? (laughs) Thanks for your cooperation. No, I understand. We could ask it this way. How many of you have been born again? Then you walked by faith. Now, to the degree that you know the word, aren't you trying to walk by faith in that too? That doesn't mean we're walking by faith as much today as we will next week or next month or next year. We would assume that we'd know more of the word by then and see more light on what we can do and how we can do it, what we can believe for and how we can believe God. But the point is simply this. If you've got a desire or a love for God and to grow in his word, then you're walking according to all pleasing. God doesn't expect you to know everything. He knows what you don't know. I remember Brother Hagin telling about a vision that he had where the Lord was teaching him about how to exercise authority over the devil. And the Lord said this to him in a vision. He said, there's nowhere in my word... Old Testament or New Testament that says to pray to me or pray to the Father and he'll do something about the devil. And Brother Hagin responded, he answered and he said, well, Lord, that's different than anything I've ever heard. The Lord had also said to him in this vision, he said to pray to me or to the Father that I would do something about the devil would be a waste of prayer. And Brother Hagin responded and said, I've wasted a lot of time praying then. He said, this is different than anything I've ever heard or understood. And he said, I don't care if I am having a vision, seeing you before me. He said, I'm going to have to have the word of God on that. And the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. I want you to give me three witnesses from the New Testament that proves what you're saying. He said, Jesus smiled real sweetly and he said, son, I'll do you better. I'll give you four. And Brother Hagin answered and said, well, I've read the Bible through 150 times and portions of it a lot more than that. And if there's anything in there like that, I'm not aware of it. He said, Jesus kind of grinned at him and said, well, son, there's a lot in there you don't know yet. Well, I'm sure we're all in that same boat, aren't we? There's a lot in there we don't know yet. And we're not held responsible for what we don't know. But for me, that's one of the reasons why I want to grow in the knowledge of the word so I can find out and take advantage of what's there. Amen. Then that means if you've got the same kind of attitude as I do, that means that you are already walking worthy of the Lord and all pleasing. And notice what Paul is praying for him. 
He's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In other words, he's praying for them that they'll learn, to, that they'll learn more, have greater knowledge of the word than what they have now, so that they can walk in faith according to that new knowledge which pleases God. God's pleased by your faith. Let's keep reading. Strengthened with all might. Well, verse 10 again. That you may walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power and to all patience. And long suffering with joyfulness. That means things are not going to work instantly. We're going to need patience. We're going to need long suffering. It's going to take some things time to bear out. To come to pass. Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints, holy ones in light. You've been made accepted in the beloved. You've been made able to stand with all the saints in the body of Christ. Who, speaking of Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. You're there now. You are in the realm where God's influence creates his will here on the earth just like it is in heaven. You're not going to be one little bit, even a little bit, more in the kingdom of God when you get to heaven as you are right now. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him, still talking about Jesus, by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Which means he has influence and power over them. And he is before all things. That means talking about priority. He's predominant or preeminent before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, By him, I say, whether they be things in the earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by the wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable. And unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith. Stay in Christ in other words. Grounded and settled. And be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Which you have heard and which was preached to every creature. Which is under heaven. Whereof I Paul am made a minister. Say this after me. I am holy. 
That sounds weird, doesn't it? Say this, God is holy. Look how much stronger you said that than when you said it about yourself. See, we're okay with saying God's holy. We believe that. Let me ask you something. Is God holy because he's never sinned? Or is he holy because he's God? See, folks, the issue is this. Sin is not the thing that makes a person unholy. Spiritual death is. So your sin, things that you stumble and fall into, do not bring unholiness or take away you the fact that you've been made holy. You're holy by nature just as God is holy by nature. See, folks, as far as God is concerned or as it pertains to God, God can't sin. If God said the wrong thing, what we would think of as the wrong thing, it would come to pass because God said it. So by the nature of God himself, he cannot be unholy. And that's the nature that he made you of. Does that make any sense to you at all? You're holy because of the blood of Jesus. Because you were recreated in his likeness and in his image. For one purpose according to the scripture. That is for you to exercise dominion here on the earth. So what do we do? We live by faith. We live by the word of God. Or another way to say that is we live according to the nature that we've been born into by the blood of Jesus. Well, aren't there things that we should do and things we shouldn't do? Not really. First John chapter 3 and verse 23 says, This is his commandment that we must keep, that we should believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in love. That's it. Romans 13.10 says, love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So then what are the fruits or the works of righteousness? Well, that's easy to identify. When we're made righteous, the Bible says in Romans 5.5, at the new birth, the love of God is shed abroad in our heart. So then the works of righteousness are simply the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit, the works, the result of the reborn spirit, human spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, literally faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. Against such, there is no law. So what are we to do? Believe God and walk in love. That's it. When I think back about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, I've, I've got to admit, I've given Adam some pretty rough going overs here. I'm not sure if it's disrespectful, but there are times where, you're th- where I'm tempted at least to think, you idiot. You had one thing, one thing not to do. Just one. 
and you mess that up. Well, guess what? You've got one thing to do too. And that is walk by faith in the nature that God has placed within you. That's it. Now, when I look at Adam's situation, I'm thinking, how easy can you get? But his situation wasn't any easier to do than ours. Ours is no harder than his. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in love as he gave commandment. That's it. That's it. Because God is holy and Jesus shed his blood, you were holy. You won't be holy someday. You won't be any more holy when you get to heaven than you are right now. You will not through good works, through spiritual maturity, be any more accepted in Jesus than you are right now. Ever. These are not things you grow into. These are the things that you grow in the knowledge of. But you don't grow into them. It's already been done. It's already yours. The fruit of righteousness, walking righteously here on the earth, is to walk in faith and love. That's it. That's it. Now, when Paul writes to the church, particularly the Romans, where he hadn't established a church yet, the church in Rome was probably grand, uh, grandchildren, spiritual grandchildren, so to speak, of Paul, but he had never been there. And so he spends a lot of time talking about how we become righteous, the sacrifice of Jesus, the exchange that Jesus made, death for life, and so forth. But to churches that he's already established, like the Ephesians, like the church in Colossae, to them, he doesn't try to reestablish the truth of the foundation or the doctrine of righteousness. He takes for granted that they know that that's who they are. And he just makes statements saying, I'm, written, I'm writing this to you holy ones. I'm writing this to those who have been redeemed, blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, and accepted in Christ Jesus. Now that's the same attitude that we should have. We should stop struggling over what has already been done. We should get our minds fixed once and for all in the fact that since we're new creatures in Christ Jesus, that new creature or that new creation is one born into righteousness, born unto righteousness. So that's who we are. Now, we certainly want to live up to who God has made us to be. But our righteousness is not even dependent on whether or not we live up to it because it's of God. Adam's righteousness, the life of God that was within him, was subject to his own deeds. Yours isn't. Yours is subject to the deeds of one, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Get that fixed in your mind. Get that fixed in your mind. Folks, that needs to be a weapon that you can bring out when the devil starts attacking you. You need to be so firmly established in that so that the devil can gain no foothold in your mind and your thoughts. No matter what's happened before, no matter what territory he's tried to occupy in your thinking up to this point, 
We need to be firmly fixed and established in that. Let me close with one final scripture. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. That means distracted or taken off course. For I am your God. He said, I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. And I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Yeah, but I feel so helpless. Well, he said he'd help you. Yeah, but I feel so weak. He said he'd strengthen you. Pastor Mike, I just don't feel like I'm going to make it. He said, I'll uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Since God is for us, since God is with us, since God is in us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for all that you've done for us through the precious work of your son, Jesus. Help us, Father, to see this like we've never seen it before so that we can move forward. Quit stumbling over the same rocks. Quit stumbling over the same guilt and feeling of condemnation. Help us to see that we are righteous by the blood of Jesus. And that righteousness cannot be taken away. Not by man, not by Satan, not even by ourselves. We are righteous with your righteousness. So we purpose to come boldly before your throne. We purpose to stand strong in you, in faith. Knowing that believing you, believing your word, living by your word, is that which pleases you as our Heavenly Father. And we purpose, Father, to walk in love. Even as you gave us commandment. And that is the purpose that you left us here on the earth to fulfill. To occupy according to the word of God and to walk in love in every situation. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, your goodness, the fact that you never leave us or forsake us. We thank you, Father, that we are righteous. We furthermore thank you, Father, that your eyes are upon us, the righteous, and your ears are open to our prayers. So, Satan, we serve notice on you. We know who we are. And we stand in that righteousness, knowing that all things have been made new, knowing that when we slip and fall, stumble as it were, we can get right back up, And walk with our Father like we never fell. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. When your kids were little and you took them for walks, sometimes they fell and stumbled. Any of you ever beat up on your kids because they fell? course not you stopped you waited you helped them up and then made sure they were okay and then you continued your walk God's not beating you up for the times that you've stumbled either 
Just get up and finish your walk. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, please. Let's lift our hands and thank God that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Made holy in your sight, Father. Holy by your Spirit. Saints. Holy ones. By the blood of Jesus. We love you, Father. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We pray for ourselves just as Paul prayed for the church. That you'd open the eyes of our understanding, Father. That we would see and know the hope of your calling. And the riches of your glory. Which belongs to us as children of God. And the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Raised us. And made us new creatures. Imparted righteousness unto us. We pray that for ourselves, Father. So that we could see and know more clearly. Growing day by day. In faith and in love. In Jesus' precious name. Can you agree with that prayer? Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great day.